Guardian Unlimited. Hello and welcome to the Guardian's Jewish podcast, Sounds Jewish. I'm Jason Solomons, which sounds pretty Jewish if you ask me. In this month's podcast, the most exciting American election in decades, but which of the candidates will Jews be rooting for? We celebrate Israel's 60th birthday and living the ultimate biblical life. Could you live by every single rule of the Bible for an entire year? I was able to stone one adulterer. I was in my biblical clothing. I was in the park here in New York City, and this man came up to me, an elderly man, and he said, why are you dressed like that? And I explained, I'm trying to follow the entire Bible, from the Ten Commandments to stoning adulterers. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said, <laughs> well, that would be great. Well, <laughs> well, stone me if in the studio with me are not the Orange Prize winning author and Guardian journalist Linda Grant and stand-up performer, writer and Yiddish maven Judy Battalion. Welcome to you both. Shalom Aleichem, Zygazint. Uh, so delighted to have you, Linda. Um, you've got a, a new novel coming out, The Clothes on Their Backs. Yes, I do. Mazel yeah. Tov. Thank you. Uh, when will we when, when we'll be seeing that? Uh, February the 7th. Oh, very exciting. Yes. You can order it on Amazon now. Yeah, get your plug in nice yeah. and quick. Yeah. Uh, and it's vague subject? Um, it's very, very loosely based on a figure not unlike uh, Peter Rachman, um, the uh, notorious slum, slum landlord and Holocaust survivor. Yeah, so it's kind of um, one of those, you know, love-hate things that we have. Well, complicated character, let's put it that way. And Judy, our Yiddish maven. We'll be looking at Yiddish cinema with a twist mm. a bit later in the, the podcast. But uh, how are you feeling today? Are you feeling Jewish? I always feel Jewish. How does it manifest it, uh, itself for you, your Jewishness? My Jewishness? Um, with an intense mix of uh, sarcasm and uh, passion at the same time. I yeah, think. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, I'm going to bring all that mm. to to the discussion uh, mm. because we're going to be looking uh, at uh, a number of uh, issues today. And I suppose the first one to to, to kind of come up for, for us is the uh, U.S. elections, mm. the, the the Jews and the U.S. elections, because the the presidential election, uh, with all its electrifying twists and turns, has been not so much the dominant news story of the last few weeks, but it seems to me. Uh, somewhat of a gripping soap opera. A key theme, it seems to me, has been the way in which certain crucial voting blocks will go. Will women line up loyally behind Hillary? Can Hispanics be uh, wooed by Obama? And less numerous than either of these groups, but more important for us, are the American Jews. Who will they be rooting for in 2008? Now, traditionally, most Jews are Democrats, but are they for Hillary or are they for Barack? Uh, where, <laughs> are you, where are you uh, on the US election? Are you, are you are you gripped by it at all? The thing about um, this Obama-Hillary thing is I think American Jews liked Clinton because, you know, he's perceived as having really done his best for Israel. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think that, you know, they, you know, that, that sort of, you know, the Kennedy radiance which is being cast on... Um, uh, on Obama and be, may um, be doing well for him, and he's taken the um, he's taken the step of giving an um, an interview to Haaretz and the Jewish press to clarify his positions on Israel. How 
important is it? I mean, obviously, you you mentioned that, is it, that Israel is is the political mm-hmm. issue in a way. And once mm-hmm. once the, the Obama clears his mm-hmm. his stance up on that, that that might swing the well, Jewish. He's done that. Um, yeah. Is it about Israel, or is it is it something yeah. more intangible mm-hmm. and cultural? It's a secondary issue. You know the, mm-hmm. you know why are, you know they are they're they're traditionally Democrat because. Republicans are like the white bread goyish party. You know, that's that's how they, they see They won't let us onto Fire Island, would no. they? You know, it, it, I, I do pose the question. You said, is, you know, the, the mm. question is, is America ready for a female president? Mm-hmm. Is America ready for a black president? Mm-hmm. Could America ever be ready for a Jewish president? Mm-hmm. And if a Jewish candidate was in the running, would you back him or her because he or she were Jewish? Not, not me, no. I mean, I would always... Um, you know, I'm one of those kind of boring people who looks at the policy documents. No, I wouldn't. Judy? No, in the same way that I wouldn't back Hillary just because she was mm-hmm. a woman. But if yes, she was I'm a Jewish woman well. in the White well, House... Well, if she was a Jewish woman... I mean, I'd vote for her. Yeah. She's I mean, a Jewish yeah. woman. I, she'd, she'd ring me up and tell me to close the fridge. I know she would. That would be that personal. <laughs> if Sarah uh, Silverman was running for president, I'd vote for her. <laughs> she'd win. I think she'd be, yeah, it would be fantastic. <laughs> This year, 2008, of course, marks 60 years since the founding of the State of Israel. And we here at Sounds Jewish like to throw our own birthday party too. So to celebrate, we're running a new series called Voices of Israel. It'll offer a kind of audio snapshot of modern-day Israel with all its diversity, complexity and chaos, from a, a settler to a taxi driver, from a falafel cafe owner to a comedy writer, and from an Israeli Arab teacher to an Israeli Ethiopian soldier. This month, singer-songwriter Rona Kanan tells her story, growing up as the daughter of Amos Kanan, a former fighter with the right-wing Jewish underground back in the days of the British Mandate, who then transformed himself into a left-wing writer and peace activist. Here, Rona reflects on dreams, loss of idealism and the place she wishes her country would be. So my father was in uh, Lehi, which was a, a pre-state militia. Um, there was... A- um, they were considered one of the more extreme. They wanted nothing to do with the, with the British that were in, in, in the country back then. My father uh, considered the Arabs and, and the Jewish people that were here as the, the, the sons and daughters of, of the land. The, the, foreign, the foreign ones, the people who didn't belong, were the British occupiers. It was a very political atmosphere as I was growing up. My father was a journalist and a, a writer and a, a very extremely left-wing uh, um, activist. I spent a lot of my, you know, big chunks of, of, of my childhood in demonstrations with my parents. Um, when the first Lebanon war was going on, there was a huge demonstration. Um, you know, I have, still have pictures of me just um, walking with these signs saying, uh, Two states, you know, for two people. My new album, the album that I'm, I'm currently working on, and um, it's it's a half fiction, half uh, a real character that is kind of based on my father, but also of a lot of it's a prototype prototype of like many people in his generation, and um, it attempts to to tell the story of, of his life and through his life to kind of tell the story of, of his generation. From the day that he was born um, to um, 
a working class family to, to the day of, of, of his death and through his life, his dreams, his hopes, his first love and his first war and the first kind of uh, um, realization that, that his dreams are not going to, uh, apparently are not going to come true. <laughs> So I hope that through that I can kind of understand something about myself and about my generation, that this was all kind of handed to us. We grew up into it. We sort of, we, we have a tendency to take this thing for granted. And um, I want to somehow remind myself that, that my father and his generation uh, fought and they had a reason. And the reason was big, that it was something big about it. I guess if I would have to sum up Israel in one word, it would be diverse, uh, very, very diverse. It's, it's a country of immigrants. And the, the, the kind of very, very uh, intense and, and tragic situation that this country was, was built on and the fact that the Holocaust happened, the fact that all these people, all these survivors came and, and, and met these groups of, of people that had been here for years before that and the relationships between them and then the, keep, the people that came from North Africa and in the, in the, in the beginning of the 90s, the Russian immigration and then the Ethiopian immigration and, and then you have the Israeli Arabs and you have the Arabs in Palestine and you have... Um, you have the extremely religious and the extremely secular and there's a kind of debate going on for years between them of how what this country should look like what should be the face of this country everything is is boiling but still there's also a kind of unique nature that it gives to this place Linda Grant, you've written novels set in Israel, of course, most famously When I Lived in Modern Times, a wonderful novel set in Tel Aviv during the last years of the British Mandate, and many non-fiction books about Israel and articles for The Guardian. Do you recognise that picture we heard there of, of young Israelis taking Israel for granted and forgetting what the early generations had to struggle and fight for? Yeah, that, that was an absolutely fantastic um, and accurate portrait. I remember... Um, going to Israel for The Guardian, actually, for the t uh, 50th anniversary 10 years ago. And you could still see on, you know, on the streets in, in Tel Aviv, on Dizengoff, you know, the old, you know, the, the, that generation, her father's generation of immigrants sitting, you know, in the cafes, in the sunshine, drinking their glasses of tea and drinking their coffee and often still talking Yiddish, arguing, you know, having, you know, but a life lived out on the streets in the sun. And, you know, when I was there um, a month or so ago, what really struck me was that, you know, those people had just gone. They, they you know, they're not there anymore. And the particular cafe that I was thinking of is now, you know, just, you know, achingly hip cafe mm -hmm. selling um, French patisserie, whereas before they'd sold, you know, strudel. Um, and the sense of, you know, that she describes of, a, you know, of, of, of a country being taken for granted, of that incredible idealism and the way that idealism just, you know, has, has kind of fragmented... Um, it's just sense, very though, telling, that, yeah. That generation, mm. in a way, yes, they're mindful of, mm. of that, but they're also mm. kind of relieved that, mm -hmm. that that kind of 
patriarchal mm -hmm. or matriarchal layer mm -hmm. has gone and they can now get on with stamping their own new identity on a country in those 10 yeah. years between the 50th and yeah. the 60th. Yeah, well, it's a very it's a very interesting question. And, and you know, where that, you know, but where that new identity is being stamped, you know, I, I would say, you know, which is in music to some extent in... Uh, you know, a, a new generation, not not the Amosols, David Grossman generation of writers, but much more a generation X, you know, because what you see in the music and, you know, in, we hear in the music and the literature and the painting is very much that, that sense of, you know, of, of a kind of, not exactly a hopelessness, but a sense of, you know, there, instead of heading towards a future, there is no future. So a living in the moment, you know, having no sense that, you know, that it is possible to move towards any kind of peace process. You'll do your army service, you'll come back, you'll try to, you know, obliterate it in your mind. It's a completely different country from 1948. <laughs> What if you were to follow every single rule in the Old and New Testament literally? And how would it change you? You might think you could handle the love thy neighbour bit, perhaps, or even the uh, be fruitful and multiply commandment. But how would stoning adulterers sit with your modern tolerant lifestyle? Our reporter, Suzanne Snyder, met up with the writer A.J. Jacobs in New York to discuss his book, The Year of Living Biblically. They spoke after his year of being a human guinea pig had come to an end and once he'd shaved off his long beard. So, how did it all begin? Well, it started because uh, I grew up with very little religion. But I became interested in religion and, uh, and especially since my, I have a young son, I wanted to know what to teach him about religion. So I decided to immerse myself in religions because that's what I like to do. My previous book was about reading the encyclopedia from A to Z. So mm -hmm. I like to take on these massive projects. And do you remember the exact moment when the idea came to you to pursue the Bible in this way for a year? Well, I had been interested, fascinated with religion because uh, I, as a kid, figured that it would just fade away because, mm -hmm. you know, and science would take over. But uh, obviously that didn't happen, and religion is a, remains a mighty force, and in America, probably even more powerful than when I was a kid. I had been uh, watching the fundamentalists in America say they follow the Bible literally, and I said, well, what if he really did? What if he followed everything to the word, to the letter? And what would life be like? Well, I wonder, there's so many great moments in the book where you talk about how it affected your wife or your son, but I wondered if you could sort of sum up the effect on your family that this experiment had. Sure. Well, my family, I, I would say there were, there were many positives that really enhanced our lives. So she loved the, my wife loved the Sabbath, and uh, she loved that I became more grateful. But then there were parts that drove her absolutely crazy. Uh, there's parts in the Old Testament where you're not allowed to touch a woman during certain times of the month. Uh, and even more than that, you're not allowed to sit on a seat where a woman in her time of month has sat. And, uh, and my wife thought this was incredibly offensive, so she sat in every seat in our apartment <laughs> and uh, I was forced to stand for much of the year. And of course, the beard. She hated the beard uh, because the Bible, you know, Leviticus says, you shall not uh, shave your beard, shall not trim the corners of the beard, to be precise. So I had this huge thing on my face that looked like a ZZ Top or, uh, 
you know, I, I spent a lot of time at airport security, mm -hmm. is the way I put it. But uh, she would not kiss me for the last two months of my project because this thing was so abundant. Now, for listeners, can you give us the actual dimensions of this beard by the end of the year? The beard was, uh, I would say it's down to, uh, down to the middle of, uh, between my navel and my solar plexus. So right in the middle of my, uh, my chest there. But it was, uh, it was voluminous. I actually, I probably shouldn't mention this, but I, I, I did keep it in a, in a bag because I wanted a, a souvenir. I felt it. <laughs> so, Where is it now? It's actually in this apartment. My wife made me put it under the sink so that it would not be visible. It's under and, the sink? Yeah. Under yeah. the bathroom sink or the kitchen uh, sink? Bathroom. I'm happy to show it to you. <laughs> if you want to see it, I'll break it out. I might have to see it. All right. And, and there was one thing about the beard is that it always reminded you of the Bible. You cannot forget about... The, the scriptures while you got this thing on your face so you know it did help me remember to be more moral I think uh, it was like a, a string around the finger a very very big hairy string around the finger well I don't want to spoil too much for those who haven't read it but I did there are so many great scenes and oh, I really thought you. especially your dilemma when dealing with the stoning law. Yeah, stoning adulterers was a problem. Because, uh, yeah, could you talk about that? Sure. I mean, it's a huge part of the Hebrew scriptures. So I felt I had to do something, but, uh, but what do I do? So uh, what happened was I was able to stone one adulterer. Uh, I was in my biblical clothing, uh, carrying my walking stick and my sandals. And uh, I was in the park here in New York City. And this man came up to me, an elderly man, and he said, why are you dressed like that? And I explained, I'm trying to follow the entire Bible from the Ten Commandments to stoning adulterers. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said, <laughs> well, that would be great. Uh, and I took out a handful of pebbles that I had in my pocket uh, because I had been carrying around these stones hoping for this occasion. And since it didn't specify the size of the stones, I figured here was my loophole. So I took the pebbles. He actually grabbed the pebbles out of my hand and threw them at my face. So I felt I was justified, an eye for an eye. I tossed one back at him. So that was my experience stoning. I was able to check that one off the list. And how did your own Judaism or spirituality change sort of at the end of this project? What were you left with spiritually? Well, I, it changed me quite a bit, more than I expected. I was really surprised. Uh, I started out as an agnostic, and by the end of the year, I became what a minister friend of mine calls a reverent agnostic, which is a phrase that I love, uh, because whether or not there's a God, I believe in the idea of sacredness, and that uh, rituals or the Sabbath or prayer uh, can be sacred, and and so I really uh, embrace that. I, 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 I love the Sabbath. I think it's a wonderful thing. As a workaholic, especially, I feel I need it as a sort of day off, uh, and I... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm still agnostic, so prayer, I don't know if you'd call it official prayer, but I say prayers of thanksgiving. I'm much more grateful than I used to be. I'm more grateful for the uh, hundred little things that go right every day as opposed to focusing on the three or four that go wrong.
Suzanne Snyder in conversation with AJ Jacobs there. And you can hear AJ launch his book here in Britain at Jewish Book Week at the end of this month. Well, I don't know about you, but the, the thought of that beard under the kitchen, uh, kitchen sink, I hope she doesn't use it for Brillo pads. <laughs> Quite useful, I suppose. Uh, following the, the Bible, Linda, could you, could you manage that? <laughs> 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 Not for five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Me, personally, I, I, I would cover my neighbour's ox because he's got a gorgeous ox. Yeah, I bet he has. God, what an incredible thing to do. I, I, I'd just be completely hopeless. Um, Judy, how far would you get? Well, I, I recently, I was reading through Leviticus for for other reasons. <laughs> we won't get into. And uh, I was I was shocked, actually, at what is really going on in the text. About half the text is prohibitions against incest and bestiality. I mean, re- I mean, like, don't mingle with the chickens was like half the, the, the discussion. And then the other half was descriptions of architectural, uh, like how the tent should look mm. with the lamp here and this here and it's like an interior design kind so of. So this bit, that bit you um, could probably do. No problem. Yeah, great. Except they don't have that much space in my flat right, but in I London. Mean, but I could do that. Yeah, the minimalism. Minimal the minimalism would be fine. Can yeah. women shave their legs? Oh, I'm sure not. Wow. No. You see? That would be something to put under the sink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have a little competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> well, we'll see how AJ gets on when he when he visits us at, at, at Jewish Book Week. I don't know what I'm going to wear to go and see him. I'm, I'm worried about this already. When you think of a score set to an old silent movie, what image comes to mind? Perhaps that of an old man hunched over the piano, tinkering away at the keys while the drama unfolds and the screen behind him. Well, the Jewish Community Centre has teamed together with three musicians to turn that old image on its head by bringing an old silent Yiddish film from the 1920s called East and West, together with a DJ, violinist and trumpet player who perform live on the stage as the film is screened. They've performed score to rave reviews before and they're taking it now to the Barbican this month. Juliet Simmons, creative director of the JCC, explains where the idea came from. The idea for score came up when I went to New York um, a couple of years ago. I was at a big Jewish conference where I saw two musicians performing live to a silent Yiddish film. Um, And I was completely blown away by the whole experience of seeing something very contemporary mixed with something very old and was really driven to try and make that work in the UK with Jewish performers. The, the main plot of the film is that the fam- there's a very successful family who live in America and the father, who's very wealthy, takes his very beautiful daughter back to the shtetl in, in the old country where there's a family wedding. And the story really is about what the beautiful daughter who's used to growing up in the West with um, everything that she could want thinks and how she reacts to this very traditional Jewish world. My name's Rohan Krivacek. I was one of the three collaborators in producing the score for for this project. We're all playing various instruments. I play um, folk clarinet, piano, violin, accordion, Hungarian double-neck zither. I think that's it for this particular project. Traditionally, in silent movies, you'd you'd have um, a score to uh, underlie the drama, 
Uh, in, in this context, because it's a very old film and it's about old meets new in the 1920s, so it's the old Jewish world meeting the new Jewish world in America, um, we were taking that kind of angle and, and developing that musically. So it was the old film and the old world that the film came out of meeting a, a very contemporary score, at times referring to traditional klezmer music or traditional Jewish music, tr traditional um, religious sung music. times um, referring entirely to much more modern music by people like PJ Harvey and Kylie Minogue which um, obviously were not relevant to the 1920s but the, um, but the actual musical content of those tracks is relevant to the emotion of the film. One of the things that is great about the plot is um, that it looks at the idea of people who live a very secular life and people who live a very religious Jewish life. There's a scene in particular where, um, when the main character has gone to America, all of the American Jews are, are ridiculing and, and um, are taking the piss out of his side locks, out of his old Jewish clothes. Um, you know, the kind of clothes, to be honest, that you still see today in Golders Green and in Stamford Hill. <laughs> So there's, there's an element of satire going on there in the original film and we're, we're working on a similar level in the way that we're interacting klezmer with contemporary music. The mixture of the two was about mixing, I suppose, last century, very early last century with the beginning of this century and it's about saying what was relevant and current then can still speak to us today and can still have a relevance to us as Jews today. And Score takes place later this month at the Barbican. Check out the Sounds Jewish webpage for more details. Tickets are selling very fast, so get a move on. Now, I know that Yiddish cinema and theatre were huge in the early 1900s here in London, but I didn't think that language played much of a part in secular Jewish life today. But you seem to buck that trend, Judy Battalion, because you're a bit of a Yiddish expert, aren't you? I am. I've uh, been a... An expert. An expert. <laughs> an expert. By me, you're an expert. <laughs> uh, now, y Yiddish was your first language. Yiddish was my first language, yeah. Uh, how, how, how does that happen? Where uh, were you born? In a shtetl? Yes. <laughs> I was born in a shtetl. It was like a shtetl. In, uh, I was born in Montreal, actually, in a community that's that's quite small and very much a post-Holocaust uh, community. I was raised primarily by my grandmother, who spoke to me in Yiddish. Go on, give me a Yiddish <laughs> word, favourite Yiddish word. A favourite Yiddish word, one of that. Well, there's many words to, for, uh, to complain. So you can you can kvetch uh, and you can krechts, <laughs> which is a, a, a more intense kind of kvetching. That's, hard, that's more than kvetching. Yes, a uh, more physical and, and intensive Fetch experience. For people who don't know where whence Yiddish comes and its roots, uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, Yiddish is kind of a mutt language, uh, so it has word that it's based in German, but there are many words from Hebrew, uh, many words from English, and many words from Polish, Slavic words, which are my favorite words, of course, uh, and also all the fashion words in Yiddish are from French. <laughs> so a coat is a mantle, like manteau. Um, uh, There's Yiddish fashion. 
Of course. <laughs> There's lots of schmatter business uh, people, obviously. But go on, give us some, some words. that You say Slavonic, uh, Slavic, Slavic words. Slavic words, okay. So are my, your favourites? My favourite Slavic words. Uh, uh, a motel. Is a, a kretschme. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever want to invite someone to spend a night in a motel, try that. Um, I, uh, Schmetnik, Patelnia, Chlopit. They're funny. See, they're funny. Just exactly. the words it's a funny are language. Yeah. Chlopit. So, uh, chlopit. What a word. What, what are you word. spitting in my eye? What are you saying to <laughs> chlopit there? Like, I'm, I'm, you can't say it. Uh, each time anyone says chlopit, you have to do it with your hands. It's right. Imagine courting in Yiddish. Yeah. It's just so funny. I mean, Yiddish romance is hilarious yeah, exactly. just as a... Because you know. Yiddish yeah. is it's antagonistic. It's always... You're irritated. Yeah. You're, you're kind of disgusted. It's not a language of courtly love, is yeah. it? <laughs> but it's... Pa- but it's impassioned. Passion. It's, it's passionate. passionate. It's passionate. <laughs> passionate yeah. and sarcastic, yes. exactly as yes. you said. Yeah. They mm. do enter, of course, the American vernacular mm. far more, more than they've than. entered the, the British vernacular. We, I mean, we're still kind of worrying about the schmock and the schmuck and whether mm. we can get away with the schlep and the schlap. There's a kind of there's a, there's a kind of pull between what's official and what's not. I mean, it's a, it's a, is it a schlep or is it a schlap? A schlep to schlep something. Yeah, did you schlep? You went on a schlep. schlep. Yeah, schlep. It's a schlep. Yeah, it's not a schlep. But in in English, I think it got it got confused at certain times, uh, depending on one's accent. I would have Mm. I would have thought Linda. Like the whole bagel bagel controversy. Yes, exactly. Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that on that hot potato or latka, we should perhaps end today's discussion of Yiddish. Thank you all very much indeed. We won't create nebuchs out of any of us. it is all we've got time for on Sounds Jewish this month. My thanks, great thanks, of course, to my guests, Linda Grant. Thank you very much Thank indeed. You. Good luck with your new novel, The Thank Clothes you. on My Back. Quick plug, when is it out? Uh, February 7th. Uh, and Judy Battalion, when can we see you? Uh, well, I'll be performing at Jewish Book Week. I'll be hosting a session with Josh Cohn called The Josh and Judy Show on uh, Sunday, March 2nd. It's a literary uh, speed read based on a speed dating model, but we no one has to date, but we're happy to make a match if it should happen um, so do come yeah. well that uh, all sounds extremely exciting and thanks of course to our sponsor the Jewish Community Centre for London we hope we've given them much nachas today from me Jason Solomon goodbye Guardian Unlimited